There you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, and hosted by the Heroes Media Group. Our guest for this episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio is Stephen Eugene Coons. He is going to change the world in so many ways, from individuals to corporations to organizations. He is on a mission uh, of great introspection, honesty, integrity, and transformation called hit you're going to love this interview he is a fantastic person that has inspired lots of people not just in his hometown but in places across the globe honored to have him here today Stephen Arcoon and uh, thank you for listening to straight out of combat radio your steely eyed killer shadow in the night you were born to fight My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Welcome to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero where we honor combat wisdom. I got to tell you, I saw this person for the first time, this veteran at the Military Influencer Conference up in Orlando just a a little over a couple months ago. And he had like this aura about him that, you know, and I'm not blowing smoke either. He knows it. I know it. And you guys and gals that know me know I'm not doing that. There's something really cool about what he's doing and what he's done prior to even being in the veteran business circles. But before that, really short here, uh, he is a decorated U.S. military combat veteran, first Gulf War. And what he does is he turns failing businesses into successful businesses. That's powerful. And he not only does it in the United States of America, he's been doing it in Europe for a long, long time. He has been handpicked to consult with some of the most influential people in the world about how to expand their brand build value for their companies and to themselves and loyalty and to develop strategies for increasing beneficial relationships. He is all about that. Throughout his professional career, Stephen has led international organizations, managed multi-continent projects, and coached executive teams in non-traditional ways that led to significant success across the board, all areas of their company. He is originally from Pennsylvania, in the U, are you a Steelers fan? No, Philly yeah. Eagles. Eagles. Uh, my dad's from Pittsburgh. <laughs> but he hails from the eastern side of the state. But he did serve in our precious United States Army from 1986 through 1993, and was based in Germany. And during that stint in the army, he served one tour in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm as a non-commissioned officer. Anyhow. Stephen, welcome to the show, man. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, Want to hear more about you? So, let me see awesome. if I can. So we're, we're we're here. So, tell us about the Coon household in Eastern PA. Oh wow, the Coon household in Eastern PA. Well, it was it was a um, it was a colorful household, uh, let's say. And this <laughs> colorful household was moved around every three or four years. My 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 mother was an adventurous woman, let's say. And she and she liked she she liked to have what she had like she liked to have what she liked to have, 
And um, I think that uh, that prepared me for a life of change, which was which made the transition to the military quite easy. And I left right after high school, 10 days after high school, and I got on the plane to take off. Um, and I was signed up to be a, a, nine, a 71 Lima Airborne, which is an airborne clerk. And when I got to the airport to fly away, the, the MPs came and pulled me off the plane and said, you can't leave until you pay your fine for, I think it was underage drinking or something. Um, so I lost my slot as an airborne clerk, thank God. <laughs> and I ended up uh, going back uh, a week later as a tanker. So I went to Fort Knox directly. I had no idea what a tank was when I got there. Which tank? I thought the M60 was the M1. I had no idea. And uh, <laughs> I showed so up. You and found I was, out very quickly. I'm sure. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. I remember the drill sergeant. It's like, um, you know, I asked anybody have any questions. I'm like, yes. When can we sign up for airborne? And he said, son, they're not going to drop a 72 ton tank out of a out of an airplane. Probably looking was, at you like, are you kidding me, boy? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, just like all the other knuckleheads. You know. So yeah, it was it was a, it was a fun time. So I left pretty quickly. I grew up, uh, you know, PA, Central PA, we like to call it Pennsylvania. Um, you know, air, air between <laughs> it's more country than most people think, though. You're oh, it's it's massive yeah. country. It's you know what people didn't know is before the Homeland Security was founded, right? You know, before 11 September, the largest government organization in America was the Pennsylvania State Game Commission. Wow, so, yeah, the, yeah. so much game land over there. Yeah, it's incredible. And I remember being in Pennsylvania, people got deer strapped to their hoods during hunting season. I'm like, holy cow, there's a lot of stuff going on around here. You know, back and forth on the interstates, no less. I'm thinking, gosh, these people are nuts up here. Yeah, you, just I loved to drive, it, yeah, you had to drive for maybe maybe 25 miles and you'd usually hit one. There's, there's, there's a popular overpopulation of deer in Pennsylvania. They always extend the deer season. They always go double doe, double doe season, all kinds of stuff. So would you say your greatest influence was your mother growing up? Did you have any... Other oh, people yeah. that you looked up to, presidents or generals or anybody else? Uh, you know, I think when I was a kid, I was just surviving. You know, I was I was a doofus. I was, you know, I I didn't like myself. I I didn't like any anything I had or did or was. Um, I was a self hater, so I was pretty happy to just make it through my childhood alive. Uh, my uh, my mom was definitely my hero. You know, I didn't understand it at the time. I don't think, yeah. but I I always looked up to her because she didn't take any shit from anybody. Um, especially not us. <laughs> <laughs> not, no kids, that's for sure. Did you have brothers and sisters? I have a twin brother and a one-year-older sister. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, and, and you know, I have to say, I, I, you know, to this day, I'm like proud of what she's done and what she went through and how she held held her own and just made her life hers. You know? And I think that's one of my brothers and my driving forces is that we never stop driving for what's ours, what we believe in. And, uh, I came from mama. <laughs> so what was it like? So what, you know, so that, thank you for sharing that. What was it like then when you finally got to, uh, basic training, you know, how did you stay focused? What was going on? Were you happy to be there? What was happening? Well, let me tell you, I, I told you I, ha I hated everything about me and myself. So when, when I went to, to the, I, I literally joined the army, not because I was a patriot, but because one, I wanted to get out and two, I wanted to start over. I knew there was someone inside of me that, that could be amazing because I had a dream uh, my brother and I had the same dream on the same night when we were eight years old. We knew something, we were going to be something in this world. So from that point on, we knew it. We just didn't know how to get out. And I, I figured if I want to get out, I have to make a break. And so when I, when I went into boot camp, I'll never forget when that razor touched my head and they started shaving off my, my 1980s mullet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had one of those, man. I know. Didn't, didn't we all? Come on. I played. You know, I, I, I tried to play football. I sucked at it. But you know, I tried, you know, you wanted the hair hanging out of the back of the helmet. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and when that when that razor touched my head, it was like this is it. This is my new me. This is my new uniform. I'm I'm never going to be that guy again. And from that day on, um, I tried everything I could to be that different person. But it was really difficult until I hit the obstacle course. 
And when and I hit the obstacle course, yeah. it was after about, I don't know, probably four weeks. I had dropped probably about 40 pounds in those four weeks. And uh, cause I was a, I was a chubby kid. I was, I was 240 in high school. So um, uh, I, I hit the obstacle course. And this is a famous story that I tell on every podcast because it, it, it formed my life forever. I had a drill sergeant, Gilbert was his name, E7 Vietnam veteran, total hard ass, but just a great guy. We got to this uh, the obstacle course, and I, you know, I crawled and, and pulled and dragged my way through it until we got to that wall. It's a wall that you had to jump. It typically has a rope on it facing you. It's like leaning towards you, but there's no rope on this one, and I had to jump over it. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. He took me and threw me down in the mud or in the dirt and put his foot in the back of my neck and was calling me all kinds of names, and I just exploded. And I jumped up and just got over that wall like it was nothing. Like it was, wasn't even an effort. Like wow. I said, Fuck you! I'm gonna show you, and I did it. And I, I stopped, and I looked. I was like, "Holy shit, man! Said, it really is mind over matter. It doesn't even matter. It's like if my mind sees it, it happens." And so I did. I ran around, did it again, and it was funny because when I when I got around that, I was like, "Man, I did it! I did it!" And I looked back and I said, "How did I do it?" And it's like I actually just wanted to prove something to him because I felt sorry for myself. And I said, "Okay, I need to turn that around and make that positive." And so that's what I started working on from then on. And literally from that point on, I just said, "Whatever I want to do, I want to do it." And I've done it. Basically, everything I ever wanted to do, I've done it. <laughs> well, what's really cool here about what you're sharing with us is, you know, you, like with the dream with your brother at eight years old, you had, you already knew, man. You already yeah. knew inside, despite all your outside influences, that there was something that was going to make you truly step ahead. And, you right. know, it, what's cool about that one instance with that drill sergeant, amazing how something that seemed so insignificant in the world had such an impact on you to get over that hump, but also what you're doing now. Well, and it, it never leaves my mind. I mean, just many people would have seen that, would have had that experience and then filed charges or, you know, whatever. I mean, back then you couldn't file charges, but, you know, um, you know, they would have been mad or would have been crying or would have said, oh, it's not fair. And I just said, you know what? This is all me. Nobody's going to do it for me. Nobody. I can sit here and feel sorry. I can do whatever I want. But the only thing that's going to take action that's going to make something happen is when I take action. And it's just... I can't stand that feeling sorry for myself because that's how I grew up, feeling sorry for myself. It's like it's almost like a phobia to me, um, uh, that feeling sorry and sort of getting down and negativity. Like I, I asked my wife the other day, I said, do you ever hear me being negative? And she's like, thanks. She's like, you know, I don't actually, never negative. I said, yeah, it's conscious. Like I'm never negative, consciously. <laughs> See, man, I got I to gotta get some of that, you know. So, <laughs> But, you know, but it's cool. So, you know, so you when you graduated, I guess you were at Fort Campbell. Knox. I know Fort Knox, Knox Fort Knox. Knox, Knox. And uh, did your mom come to your graduation? She did. Awesome. She did indeed. She did indeed. It was uh, pretty amazing. And she was like, I can't believe it. And my father told me years later, uh, you know, they were separated when I was, I don't know, four or something. And he told me years later, um, actually 2015, when he came to see the birth of my daughter here in Hungary, um, uh, he told me, he said, I never, I knew just, I knew you weren't going to make it through boot camp because you were, you didn't barely made it through high school and you were just a disciplinary problem. Yeah, and I told him I said, you know, I'm glad you didn't tell me that shit back then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> could have been trouble. No, yeah, it could have been trouble. You know, seriously. <laughs> wow. So you know, then it's amazing. So you basically, literally, for all intents and purposes, the United States Army turned a lot of stuff around for you. You actually knew what was in you, and that just like magnified it. I knew there was something in me. I didn't know what. And yes, it, it gave me the opportunity to let it all out. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, you're in boot camp. What people, what a lot of people don't realize who aren't, aren't in the military is that it's do or die. It's all or nothing. At least it used to be. You know, I don't know how it is now, but you know, it's do or die, all or nothing. And you have absolutely nothing to use. You're either going to make it, or you're going to die of a heart attack. That's the way I saw it. I mean, I literally ran at the. Fr I was the slowest guy because I was so big. 
and I'm sort of lanky, and I would run at the front of the formation as hard as I could, and I'd be vomiting on myself because I knew if I was in the back and no one saw me, I'd fall out. So I decided I'm not going to fall. I just I don't care what I have to do. I'm running at the front, hacking and, and vomiting and stuff. People were slowing down just so I could keep up, you know. And I was holding the holding the formation up, um, but no one, everyone knew why I was doing it. So it was sort of like a positive thing, like come on, Cone, you can do it, you know. No more burgers for you and that kind of stuff, you know. That's <laughs> awesome, man. You know, I remember one time I stopped once on a road march to tie a boot lace, and, and I was I, and I and I dropped behind. And it was the last time I ever dropped behind because the deuce and a half just caught me. I was like the yes. last guy on it. You remember that deuce and a half? Oh, I and I was that. like, holy like, no. shit, I'm in <laughs> trouble now. But anyhow, so 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 you got out. Your mom came. You, I mean, it, it is a very for those that haven't been through a uh, military graduation, it does make you feel like you're a freaking winner in everything that you do. And uh, of course, the influence your mom had, I, I can't even imagine. But very cool. So then you went right away to Europe. That was your first duty station, right? I went to Gelnhausen, Germany, um, and uh, I landed, and some, and I was like, "Wow, this feels like home. You know, this feels like like I belong here for some reason." And I saw the the big towers of uh, of Frankfurt in the distance. I was wondering what the heck that is because I thought you know everything was you know like you see on TV in Bavaria with the later you know later hosen and the you know, <laughs> little villages and stuff. And thank goodness I landed in Gelnhausen which is a, the perfect village. It looks just like you would see on TV for Bavaria, all the wooden house. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful town. It was Cold War. Most people forget, so the Russians were the big enemy. We had the, we had the border in Fulda, and uh, we, we did border patrol every year, and we went to gunnery. Basically, we spent 10 years out on maneuver, either on, in, in gunnery, at exercises, or on the border. So I think months. it's, what is it, Graf, Grafenvir? Grafenvir. Hohenfels, yeah. Grafenvir was gunnery. Hohenfels was was deployment, sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, missions and sort of fake gunnery. You know, Hoffman and Taufman devices and all that kind of stuff. And then we had the um, border patrol in Fulda, so OP Alpha. And I think that, but a lot of people don't realize you're like at ground zero there for the Cold War. And if there was an engagement. I don't think you guys had a very high survivability rate, did you? No, no, no. It was full to gap. That's as they call it the full to gap because it was the only place where the Russians with any sort of mass could come across to Western Europe. And that was we were the tripwire and we were the very front. And then when I got stationed later, I got stationed in Berlin. That was even worse. I mean, we had what we have uh, sixteen tanks. I think we had sixteen tanks total. Surrounded by the enemy. Was, yeah, exactly. By like 20,000 tanks. Makes the Alamo look like a, you know, a pea shoot. <laughs> but, but anyhow, so, so, so tell us about that deployment to the first Gulf War. What was going on and how did you feel when you guys got the orders to go? I'll never forget when we saw it on, when we saw it on CNN. We're like, they called out the third armor division. We're like, what? Why would we hear about it on CNN and not from our, you know, commander? Um, so, you know, I'll never forget. I went to call home and, and all the lines were down. Like, no one could call home because everybody from 3rd Armored Division, which was all of Frankfurt. So it was Kurt Jagoens, uh, um, um, Gelnhausen, and uh, Friedberg were the three areas, you know, where Elvis was stationed. Um, those were the three posts that were 3rd Armored Division. We were all going. So once I did get to call home, you know, it was like, hey, don't worry about it. It's cool. You know, uh, we don't know what's going to happen yet. But it might be over before we get there, that kind of stuff, trying to calm people down. But then we had to actually, you know, um, for the first time since Vietnam, uh, figure out what the heck we were doing. And... Because we were trained in mountain warfare and, you know, forests and green and uh, we weren't ready for the desert. Um, we didn't think about that until we got there, of course. 
but we had to write our wills, of course. And we had to hmm. said, here's get as many boxes as you need to pack those things in there that you want to give to each person. So I packed a box for my mom, one for my dad, one for my brother, one for my sister. And then I put my stuff in it that I wanted them to have. And I, then I had to write a note uh, in each one of those boxes as if I was already dead. Um, and that was, that was fucking tough, man. That was like the toughest thing I've ever had to do. And, but what it did was it psychologically prepared me to not come back. So, um, when, when I left and I went there, I'm like, okay, this is it. How old were you? 23. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'm not coming back. I'm ready. I've, I've cleared up everything at home. I've talked to everybody. I've said everybody that I love them. I told everybody I wrote everything down. You know, I wrote my will. I'm done. I'm ready to go. And I knew because we were the eighth cavalry task force, eighth cavalry at the very front with two ACR. Um, and when two ACR with McMasters, well, he was a captain then. I don't know if you know, if you know General McMasters, um, he was a captain then in uh, two ACR. When then when they peeled off to the right, we went straight and we slammed into the Terracana and the Medina Republican Guard and fought in the, um, um, the uh, what is it, 677 Easting, I think it's called. There was a video game made after it and stuff. That was our battle. Uh, so you guys were so you guys were at Messina then. We were at Messina Ridge, the the battle Messina Ridge. Were you guys there? Yeah, oh yeah, we were the we were the ones who battled. I mean, we yeah. ran out of ammo, ran out of diesel. Uh, of course, we ran out of diesel because the one captain um, in charge of supply was suddenly religious and wouldn't deploy his people. Um, but <laughs> interesting <laughs> things you don't hear. Yeah, things you don't hear about. Uh, you know, after the war, and um, yeah, and it was it was uh, it was a crazy time because I remember standing there. God, I'll never forget this. I was standing there. We were out of ammo. We just, I was, it was dark. It was raining the whole time. It was like drizzling. There was like dark clouds. The sun was just coming up. And 267 Armor for Freeburg, we did a passage of lines with us. So we stood still and they passed through our lines. The, the ceasefire ended like – I mean the ceasefire started a couple hours later. And I remember seeing these guys roll by and I'm sitting there like I was in a film. Like I was floating. I was awake for two days straight. I was high on every, every – um, I don't know – feeling that I've ever had, whether it was fear or, or joy, I don't know what it was. And I just remember standing there going, oh, is this real? Is this, am I even here? It was so surreal. It was so surreal to be in a battle like that. Wasn't that like, you? Like I don't know, maybe I don't know the full details, but like 20 tanks against 200 hard yeah. vehicles from the enemy and like within 30 minutes it was over and you guys destroyed every vehicle? Was well, there something was, crazy like that? Yeah, well, they had, they had five tanks for every, five armored vehicles for every tank we had. So, um, yeah, it was five to one, but it, it was over for us. I think it was about 48 hours total. We, we fought and maneuvered and fought and maneuvered. Um, but you know, we, yeah, we pretty much decimated them. I, you know, we didn't lose very many. We lost too many, of course, because anyone losses too many. Um, but I, when, when we did capture some of them, they were like, what rockets were you shooting at us? Because, you know, a T-72 maximum effective range is 2,500 meters and ours is 4,000 meters. Right. So, and, and they were using infrared lights, which is like, you know, a target itself. Cause when we use the, you know, when we use our sites, we see them 20 miles away, you know, in infrared lights, like a beacon. So, um, yeah, we pretty much decimated them. But then of course, one, you know, first armor division swooped around on our flank and came a little bit too far forward and started shooting at us. And we started shooting at them. It was crazy. Well, thank God nobody got. Did anybody get hurt in that one? No, 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 because no, there were two. There was flashing zeros on the on on the laser uh, um, um, uh, distance finder that, which means it's over four thousand meters. But they fired anyway. It was like Jesus, slow down, guys. And I was, <laughs> it was, you know, it was like a, it was crazy. And I was actually out there with my video camera. I, I filmed some of it. Like I filmed part of the battle with my video camera. Like I'm, I filmed when the artillery started. I filmed artillery dropping behind us and uh, mortars in front of us. It's like wow. I was filming. Look, you know, it just, you got past fear. It was like you weren't even scared anymore. You were just there. 
Did you witness any of the torching of the, the I know they torched a bunch of oil yeah. rigs. Did you guys yeah. see all that stuff? Not only did we see it, we lived underneath them. Because once once the battle was over, we combed the battlefield. Went to the went to the other. You know, you have to go through the battlefield. Went to the other side of the objective, and we camped out for I think it was like two or three weeks, right in the middle. There was three or four burning oil well files, fires within a, a mile of us, and then there was two that weren't burning, just shooting up in the air. So we we actually thought about lighting them on fire because the oil was coming down on us. So you'd wake wow. up every I mean, everything the whole everything was covered in oil. You'd wake up in the morning, you'd have black nostrils and black lips. Um, and it was just oil in the air, like a mist of oil. Um, and so we finally moved after like three weeks. It was ridiculous. Plus, we, they would spray diesel all over the ground to make sure there wouldn't be any dust. So you were living in petroleum for, for weeks. Uh, nasty. <laughs> so, so how would you characterize the enemy, the Republican Guard? Um, they were the only ones that fought. Every, you know, the regular armies uh, didn't fight at all. But once they saw what we had, they ran, you know, pretty much ran and hid. I mean, I went down in a bunker, a couple bunkers. Bunkers were everywhere underground we went to a bunker and pulled some guys out no resistance whatsoever they were like i remember one guy brought the jeep uh he's like when are you, when are you going to kill us and we're like what, what are you talking about you know and it's like yeah saddam said you when you if we get captured you'll kill us I'm like no brother it's like, here's here's an mre here's some food eat because uh you know because i remember seeing the pictures of the long lines just trickling back of enemy soldiers i think you yeah. guys spent a lot of time just Grave, grave registration that a lot of people don't talk about, but but yeah. also just taking prisoners and trying to process massive amounts of prisoners. Well, we had MPs with us; they just took care of all that. We just basically pushed them back to the MPs. MPs took care of them, marched them back, and then just they just did like a handoff. Because you got to realize the column for the Third Armored Division was 200 kilometers long, 25 kilometers wide. That's insane. That's a it massive is, amount of power, right? It's there. ridiculous too because we couldn't move at night. And we tried moving at night. Someone dro- drove over their first sergeant and killed him. Um, we couldn't find each other. Uh, you know, there was no re- refuel and resupply because no one knew where anyone, anybody was. Someone's like, hey, where are you? It's like on the radio. I'm the one with the green chem light. You, you, and you looked outside of the tank. There was like 3,000 green chem lights. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over there. Yeah. yeah. So so what you're telling me is just just massive amount of firepower well, just was unleashed. If you know the Army like anything, we're more like pack rats than anything else. We're, we're like a gypsy train. I mean, we had <laughs> – you know, supply trains were just full of everything. I remember they had billiard tables and video games and refrigerators. I was like, what? You know, the funniest thing that happened to me is we were um, – I was with, um, I don't know, like a small team. And we were – I don't know where we were going. We were going somewhere. And on, we stopped on the side of the road and there was four Hummers from the Marines. And we said, hey, guys, what's up? I'm talking. I'm like, where's the rest of your, your guys? And he's like, what do you mean? This is us. I'm like, oh, four Hummers. Where, where's your gear? He's like, well, what do you mean? This is our gear. <laughs> and we're sitting there. We had like five deuce and a half filled with just shit. You know, you know, volleyball nets and that's insane. It's just crazy. It was like, man, how embarrassing was that? Refrigerators and everything. We didn't have it. It was, you know, the headquarters and the uh, the the supply trains. We had to actually steal water. I mean, I I I volunteered with the sergeant major to go back and steal water uh, from the supply trains because they wouldn't it wouldn't it never made it to us. Matter of fact, uniforms never made it to us. We had our army green, um, you know, the 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 winter yeah. yeah, wooden green uniforms the whole time. Wow. So how did that, you know, so let me ask you this. How did that experience impact you personally? You know, well, I, I, I lost a buddy there. His name was Sergeant Young Dillon. Uh, he was a Korean American guy. He, he got, he got to silver star posthumously. Uh, he died in my arms. Um, he, he, uh, he was, uh, one of the, I don't know. I don't, I, you know, he was one of those guys, like all the guys, you know, he's just one of those guys that just didn't just had so much more to give, you know? And I think that I carry that with me today because of the things that I thought at that moment. I think you know the things that I found. I, I, I changed the way I think about myself. It changed the way that 
I, I talk to myself, the self dialogue, you know, this kind of thing that changes all that when, when you have that experience, because I feel like I had this discussion the other day with a guy who called me crying. Uh, I said, I don't know how to deal with all my buddies. I lost. Why am I here? And I said to him, like I always say to myself is like, when I looked in his eyes before he left, his eyes said to me, you better not make this in vain. Um, and so, so I, you know, when I feel sort of like I'm in a bad place, I just look up and go, I know, man, I know, I know I got a good thanks. You know, like that kind of thing, you know, it's like that, that's how it changed me is that whether or not you want to see it as romantic or not, or patriotic or whatever it is for me, he left his life there so that we could thrive. And I owe it to him and everyone else who fell to thrive. And I'll be damned if I'm not going to. Well, thanks for sharing that. So you, so congratulations for making it back. And I, you know, sorry about your buddy. You know, I, I can't imagine, you know, it's easy for me to say, you know, I was watching it all on TV and, you know, all I can say is that, you know, I, I was proud to be an American and what you guys did over there. So, so when you, so you went back to Germany after that. Right. And, and then you, how long was it before you ETS'd out or did you stay in for a couple more years or what did you yeah. do? Well, it was hard when I got back because I got back to nothing. So, cause you remember I had, I had resigned. I wasn't coming back. Yeah. So it was like being born again. It was like, you're going back. It's like, now what? I just like ended everything. So now I, I went back and there was nobody there. So I, I, I got my two buddies, um, Jim and Jack <laughs> spent a few weeks with those guys There's a book there somewhere. <laughs> Spent a few weeks with those guys in bed and uh, just laid there and drank all, all the time. And um, and then I decided to get, get my head out of my ass. And, uh, I had orders to go to um, Riley. And I was like, I don't want to go to Riley. So I went down to, to headquarters and I got my orders changed to go to Berlin. And because uh, I, I, I knew people. I was already working my influence back then. Back in those days, I would go to the MOS clerk down in Heidelberg and I would take him to lunch and say, Hey, let's say it's go to lunch. I'm here down here. I might as well. And I talk and tell him about what I did. Cause I, I did three consecutive tours overseas and you can't do that typically. So I did three consecutive tours in the same companies, in the same battalion, that kind of stuff. And that was unheard of at that time. So I did that cause I was working wielding influence with the people that I worked with, or, you know, that I build up relationships with. Well, you were using your skill sets, man. I of mean, course, you know, man. Yeah. Of course, I was a spec four back, you know, before the war and I was getting what, what E7s and E8s couldn't even get. So that's awesome. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. And, and that, that of course got me picked up for, you know, colonel's driver, sergeant major's driver, special duties, all kinds of stuff. They, everyone wanted me to, and plus I started speaking German because I hung out only with Germans, uh, when I was there, uh, as much as I could, of course, GIs as well, but you know, mostly with Germans. And I started speaking German, uh, quite quickly. And then on the border, of course, I wanted to learn German. So I, cause I wanted to hear what they were saying, cause I wanted to solve, of course, the cold war. So, <laughs> no, I get you. I think I remember one thing. Klein be a bitte. Klein be a, yes. I'll be your fleet. It's been student, nine GI. <laughs> I'm just like, you know. I'm a student. What's a with the haircut, boy? You know? Yeah, really. So well, you now, were in the Berlin I mean, Brigade? It doesn't matter. Everyone has a haircut like that over here now, so it doesn't even matter. Um, but back <laughs> in the day, it was obvious. If you, had, if you had short hair, you were GI. Yeah. I hear you. So you were, that was the Berlin Brigade then. You were attached after, to Berlin. After that, I was, no, after the Gulf War, I came home and I went to, um, yeah, I, I did. I went to Berlin Brigade. I was there for a year. And then for when we closed that, well, first I closed down Gelnhausen. We turned it, we left our tanks in Saudi, actually. Wow. Came, came back without tanks and we closed it down. Then I went to Berlin, closed that down. And then I went to Schweinfurt and they were going back to Kuwait. And I said, I'm getting out. I'm getting out. So I had, I still had, I still had like a year and a half left, but I found a way to get out early honorably <laughs> why doesn't that surprise me man you know, not, <laughs> people are like how are we gonna talk in? man we got- <laughs> <laughs> well it, it's a it's a 
anything's possible when you know the rules. And I, I just read up on the rules. That's all. And I talk to people who know the rules. Yeah. And so, you know, I was always, I was supposed to be an officer a couple times, but I just kept doing other stuff. You know, So I had a lot of great connections to colonels, and one general, and a couple command sergeant majors and stuff who really respected me for what I was trying to do with my life. And I just had, I was just lucky to, to, to have that kind of dialogue with those kind of people. Um, they could show me, you know, direction and attitude, things like that. So, um, yeah. And then I, and then after that, I went to a shrine for us and I'm getting out. So I got out and I got a European out and I literally walked off base, turned around and I couldn't get back on because I was, I was then a civilian and I was still in uniform. I, I wore my greens the last two weeks, every single day to help process. Uh, Cause wow. it was so, really, you, really hard. You stayed in Europe, right? You stayed oh, in Europe. Oh yeah. yeah. I went back to Berlin and I started my life and I was a doorman and then I was, uh, Security guy, and then I, you know, I did. I started in a cocktail bar as a bartender. Then I opened my own cocktail bars. I had three of those nightclubs. Um, then I got into the health club business, um, and we opened up in total over 15 years, 87 health clubs in nine countries. Um, and then uh, at the whole, at the same time, I'm doing that. I wrote a book. It was a bestseller. I started doing TV commentary because my German was really good. I was like an American who spoke German. And what then, was the title of your book? What was the title? It was in German, so it was called Soldat im Golfkrieg. So it was Soldier in the Gulf. Uh, served in the Gulf from Soldier to Cynic would be the German or the English title, basically. Right. And it, it came out the day the war started in 2003. So the new new Iraq war, I like to call it, that started in, in March or February of 2003, I think it was, and that's when my book came out. Literally that day. It said War in Iraq on the front page. On the second page, on the third page, it said Sergeant Coon's Private War. And that, of course, shot my book up the bestseller immediately, put me on TV, and that's all I did then for a year was just TV and book tours. All and over Europe primarily? All over German-speaking Europe, yeah. yeah. yeah that's and that's cool. awesome. Well, Germany and Switzerland. I was actually born in Stuttgart. Uh, my yeah. sister was born in Heidelberg. My dad was an Army officer. I bet. And yeah. uh, don't remember much, but I did have Lederhosen. And I remember <laughs> I found some. It was in an old crate, Stephen, and uh, – it was all musty and everything. I said, how in the hell did I ever get into this stuff? And my mom and dad made me wear that stuff. Oh, I you still know? wear it. I still, yeah. like, when I, when, I, when, when I go to the Oktoberfest, I go as a German. I wear the lederhosen and the whole works. Otherwise, you, you're just not, you're just a tourist. You know? <laughs> so your transition, so your transition, this is kind of cool, man, because you're the first veteran that I've, that I've talked to that transitioned not back to the United States, but into Europe. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you were... You were hard charging right off the bat. You didn't fall into that stuff that we hear so much about. Um, I did, uh, but it wasn't because um, I was. I don't know. It, I felt basically I had a, I had a breakdown about two years in into my civilian life, where yeah. I, I woke up naked in a park in Berlin, which uh, for me was unusual. But for Germans, it's not because everybody's naked in Germany. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of their favorite pastimes. Well, you fit. Yeah, yeah. It's good man. <laughs> So, um, and, and I sort of was outside of myself for two weeks. I didn't know what was going on. And then it came, it came back down and I got my life together and I moved forward and started doing things, got into the corporate world and started going up the chain. I was a director of Europe for operations development for a big, you know, listed company in the, in the UK. And then I took over the, the joint venture for an American company, you know, went to Chicago for nine months, uh, just, you know, it exploded, got my MBA in the UK from, you know, one of the most elite universities. A business schools there is it's the second oldest in the world bradford university and you know just did all the things that you're supposed to be doing and then 2002 december everything fell apart everything i mean everything marriage money job everything just everything fell apart so i crashed and burned but i didn't crash and burn in my head i kept going because i wrote the book 
in December, right after I lost everything, and that took off, and that you know that carried me forward. But I should have crashed. What saved me was the book going going public. But then it caught up to me in 2007, 2008, when the economic crash came. Because I, I have a twin brother, and you know he, we had a mortgage company with Flagstar Bank, a charter. I made a lot of money. Started doing movies in Hollywood and financing them and producing them and stuff. And we, we overstretched our limits because we thought it would last forever, which we knew it wouldn't, but we sort of ignored it. And we lost everything. He declared bankruptcy. I didn't. I didn't have to because I was living in Germany, but I lost everything anyway. Uh, so what motivated you primarily through that? What was the, what was the motivation that just kept you going? You know, I, I, I like to, I, I like to think it was Sergeant Dillon partly, you know, I mean, I always saw him over me going, man, you better not screw this up, brother. <laughs> you know, you better not screw this up. Um, but I, you know, I think it's because I just know that everyone on this planet was put here to be abundant and to be happy that, 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 being unhappy and not being where you're living joyfully is a mistake. And so until you find that way, just keep asking and trying and looking and find digging and reading and learning and talking and just and I always said, Man, god dang it, I'm going through this for a reason. There's a reason I'm going through this. There's gotta be a reason. No no one would do this on purpose for no reason. <laughs> You know, so I'm always thinking like that, like that's gotta be a freaking reason. I'm learning this right now. This is a tool I'm gonna need later. Well, it's cool that you point that out because it's a great story. And I know that, you know, and I wasn't just blowing smoke at the beginning, you know, this introduction, you know, when I did see you and I saw this guy and I'm like, what's, who's that guy over there? And there's this aura, but I I felt this like energy oscillating and all the people that were walking away from where you were standing, you could just feel it. You know how you walk into a room, some people you walk into a room and it's like the air just got sucked out of it. Like, you know, you don't want to be around that. And then there's some people you wonder what is, you know, what's going on with that person. But what I like about what you point out is there is a purpose and sometimes it's easier said than done. So when you're in that dark spot and we're talking about joy and finding purpose and happiness, there's gotta be a special ingredient. What do you think it is? Oh, I think it's for each person, it's their own. It's their own ingredient. But I think the, the biggest ingredient, ingredient is to realize that you're never where you are permanently. And that everything that you are right now is a result of your past thoughts. So you can't dictate your reality right now. You can only dictate the future. So your actions right now dictate tomorrow, right? right. So today is only only a dictation of your, of your actions from yesterday. So you know that today is going to end and then tomorrow is going to come. So basically, you, it'll be the next day. So whatever you do today is going to dictate tomorrow. So if you stay in that rut, if you stay in that shitty mindset you're going to dictate tomorrow it will be the same as today or you say you know what i can change this because no one else is going to do it for you nobody that's pretty important that you say that because you're so freaking right if you don't do it nobody's going to do it so before we get to the things about freedom you and i were talking a little bit about the landscape and this is why i think for the listeners out there why i think you're different than who we've had on here is because you operated in the civilian sector for 20 plus years. Right. And it gives you a boots on the ground vision that a lot of veterans don't see. And what I liked about what we were talking about, and again, I want you to do all the talking is that there, there's something going on in the veteran space that's uncomfortable. It's one of the reasons why we're doing the radio show but there were three things that we pointed out. Veteran-centric nonprofits that misappropriate funds, 
this freaking entitlement that we see in some of these tribes, God bless them. And then stolen valor, man. You know, all I can say is this is a conversation that needs to be had. Like you told me that. See, I'm paraphrasing you. I'm just rephrasing what was already said. But but these are the conversations that need to be spoken about because all that shit hurts all of us. Yeah. Well, there's, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, caveats that go into, there's so many channels that lead into what you're talking about. I think the biggest one I think is, sto- is, is you know, stolen valor is a thing that, I don't know why it happens, but it happens. But for me, stolen uh, clout, stolen influence is even worse. Um, you know, someone who says something that they've done something that they haven't, someone who says they're professional when they're not, someone who says they can teach you this and they're not, someone who fakes it until you make it, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that's worse for me than stolen valor. I know for, for some other people it probably isn't, but because I'll tell you why. Stolen valor doesn't affect me personally except for my, let's say, belief in patriotism, pride, and what's right. Uh, and so when someone – I hire somebody or bring somebody out and work with somebody who isn't what they say they are and they ruin my business or they mess with my business and they set me back in time, that affects me personally. And that's why I say it's – sometimes you know, it's more – sort of has more impact on me personally. But let me, let me, let me talk about that 20-plus 20, 20 years of no contact to the, to the military is – when I got out of the military, I knew that I had to get out of that mindset because I was hanging out for the first year or two with buddies from the army that stayed in Berlin, and it was the same thing all the time. Talking about the old days, talking about how great it was. You know, we pumped ourselves up, and how civilians sucked, and it was they don't understand, and we're badasses, and all this kind of crap. And I realized it was holding me back. And as soon as I made that switch, I said, hey, "Guys, you know, we can see each other once in a while, but I'm 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 going. I'm taking this path." As soon as I did that, I shot to the top, and I'll tell you why. Because the mindset that we have, the skills set that we have, and the ability to see through all the bullshit and just make it happen is priceless in the civilian world. I mean, you cannot buy that in the civilian world. I went to German companies. Everybody's like, you can't work in a German company because you don't have a degree and all this kind of stuff. You don't have all the paperwork and certificates in Germany, whatever it is. And I said, I don't care. I don't need it. And I did it. And I went to work for Mick Jagger. And I went to work for um, um, Andrea Bocelli. I went to work for Olivia Newton-John, all in Europe. And because because I said I want to do it, I didn't have the degrees, I didn't have the qualifications, I didn't have anything. I just said I can do it, and I just kept doing it over and over and over. I worked for the government. I worked for. I founded a co-founded a, a, a political organization in Germany, which is now the second largest party in Germany. Um, it's it, that was 13 years ago we started, and we we took over the party four years ago, and now it's the second largest party in Germany. Um, and I'm still. I, I worked with the royals. I worked with uh, Parliament. I spoke at the Parliament, uh, European Parliament. Uh, I've worked with Veterans Affairs in Croatia with the Balkan veterans. I've worked, you know, all these things that I've done where I'm not even qualified on paper, but I freaking killed it because of the mindset that we learn in the military is you freaking get it done. Now, that doesn't mean that I walked around and said, look at me, I'm military. I never said that I was military until they found out. I'll tell you why. Because if I say it, it's bragging. If they find out about it, and I didn't tell anybody about it, that's impressive. That creates influence. And we're back to where I preach, and that's hit. Honesty, integrity, transparency, living a life of you know authenticity, and how investing in relational capital creates influence. And that's what I was doing, because that influence creates opportunities to make more money. And that's how I did it. And I, I made money, 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 money. A lot of freaking ridiculous amounts of money when I was you know rolling along like that. I mean, I lost it all in 2008, but before that, I was just rolling and rolling. And I lost in 2008 because I got too too shitty. I got too stupid. I got too big headed. I got too, you know, greedy. I had a big seven series BMW and all the crap flying business class everywhere I went. Just, you know, yeah, you know how it <laughs> hey, is. Hey man, it's hard I, not to, you know? Yeah, you had to, I had to back in those days. You know, I was like, I had to do that so that I'm normal now. 
I mean, I, I've released myself from all that stuff. Like, I don't go to the galas anymore. Like, I was, you know, I would go to um, the UNESCO ball, and I'd be meet, be hanging out with Kofi Annan and Bill Clinton. I'd be, you know, Shirley Basie would be singing. And it was just like, this is what I did on weekends, you know. Well, you know what, man? I'm so glad you pointed that out about not bragging or not even discussing your your veteranness because I was talking to a veteran the other day. Because you know, I was at this party and I saw this veteran wear a shirt. It said, "I don't take meds to protect myself. I take meds to protect you." And I'm thinking that would be great if we're all sitting around, guys. You know, all army guys smoking and joking. But you wear that shit out in public, and what does that do? to improve the image or the perception of veterans zero 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 yeah and and i think the problem with that is that most people think about themselves first that's and and it's the reason that they think about themselves first which obviously most people do is because it's a protective state isn't it so if you don't know where you're going in life if you feel lost you you always regress to that place where you felt the strongest and for most people let's face it it was a military for a lot of people the only real identity true identity they've ever really felt was theirs was being in the military so they get out and they're a postman or they try to try to do their own business or they it's just making money and living a life it means nothing without fulfillment it means nothing without selflessness and that's why the military is so hard to replace so i you know so i order this fok bergdahl shirt right and uh i get it out and my wife looks at it she goes where she looks at me kind of cross-eyed she goes where are you going to wear that shirt and she's right. It's in the bottom zone. Yeah. yeah but right. tell me about HIT. Tell us about HIT. Go a little yes. bit deeper there. Okay. HIT is a, a concept that I came up with about 15 years ago when I started training. Uh, so I took over um, you know, a company here and we had about 3,500 employees and I was and I, I was going to set them straight. I remember I did one location just to see how it worked and the, the CEO came uh, from the UK, from the mother mothership and said, what? have you done here? This is incredible. How did you do this? And I said, it's actually quite simple. You know, uh, we have three, three principles with, with which we work. That's honesty, integrity, and transparency, honest with honesty with yourself and those around you transparent with the decisions you make for yourself before you make those decisions for those around you that create the byproduct of that is, is integrity. That integrity makes you authentic. That authenticity allows you as you or your company to dictate your market value. Now, when is, you that can, a pro- is that a process you came up with? Yes. It's a process. Okay, cool. Invented over 15 years. And uh, it used to be called conscious leadership and self-leadership and all those other kind of buzzwords until it finally came down to it that the three main ingredients were hit, honesty, integrity, transparency. So um, what what happened was then is that I ended up using that as my calling card, so to say, and that created massive, massive influence around the world for me, mostly in Europe at the time. But it wasn't just because of hit. It was because I was investing in other people. So I was providing for them. I was providing as much as I could for those around me. And I didn't know it at the time. Um, but providership is is basically leadership. So providership is giving somebody certainty, giving somebody variety, giving somebody significance, love, connection, growth, and contribution. Those are six essential human needs. And if 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 you realize that every human based problem on the planet can be solved by looking at those six needs, it blows your mind. I didn't know this at that time, but I was already operating in that space. So I knew that I was at a higher level because I realized, okay, this guy. This guy's a good guy. He's 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 you know this employee whatever it is is, is a good guy, but he's acting out because he doesn't feel significant. So fix significance. Boom. A week later, he's uncertain about his life. So now we have to fix his uncertainty. You know, this is the kind of thing that I always went through. So I started teaching hit so that people could clear their minds of all the BS and look at who they really are first, and that the the outcome of looking at yourself first and being honest with everything is like for instance, I can look at myself and go, I, I need money to, to to raise my family. I need money. And then over here, I got, you know, 
someone asked me to do a drug deal, bring, bring drugs from Amsterdam to Berlin, for instance, right? <laughs> Honestly, I can say I need that money. That's honest. Like, that's not a lie. I need that money. But the transparency says, dude, if you do that, you have no integrity. That's, trans- that's where transparency kicks in. And that's when, you, when those two are even, that's where, the, that's where the byproduct of integrity pops out. And people see that. You don't have to say a word. They see that you're, you're integral. They see that your word is your bond. That, 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 you know, we really have two things in our life that we own, and that's our word and our name. You know, that's the only two things we can actually influence is a word in our name. And, you know, you can, we can stand on Times Square with 10,000 people around you. Someone's screaming scream your name. They're going to turn around, e- even, even if they don't mean it to you. <laughs> but, you know? No, but that's true. You know, one thing that you pointed out, and this is kind of a segue, but I'm glad you said that, Stephen, is that, you know, the companies out there, you know, fake it till you make it or, you know, say, saying that you're going to deliver something and not deliver. And, you know, it doesn't take long for those companies that exercise anti-hit practices yeah. to be seen yep. and well, when you're seen like that you're not going anywhere well <sighs> or you better change quick yeah well they do though that's the thing isn't it i mean let's face it there's people out there right now doing business and they shouldn't be there's people out there right now screwing people over making just a nickel and diamond themselves to death uh, but just barely making it and screwing people over left and right i see it all the time it drives me mad. I'm not going to try to change them because I'm not the police, right? But you know, when they come that, in contact, yeah. when they come, when they come in contact with me, um, and and you know, they want to, you know, I'm I'm very difficult with that. I, I've turned people down to work with them because I look, man, either we do it honestly or we don't do it at all, you know. And it's just it's especially veterans, you know. Look, I mean, let's face it. There's there's a lot of veterans out there that are struggling, but. I'll be damned if they'll, man- if they'll admit it. And because they won't admit it, they'll, they'll, they'll go to extreme lengths to make money and to make sure that they look like they're successful. And that's a huge problem, I think, in our industry, in, in our, in our, you know, branch. Everyone talks to me about, yeah, you know, this is, I'm doing that and this and that. And then they come to me a month later and say, I'm broke. I don't have any money. My wife left me, you know, and on, online, they're just like this superhero. And it's just, yeah, it's, yeah. It, happens all, it happens all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, we all have been there. Believe me, I was homeless in 2008. After I lost everything, I was fucking homeless in Berlin. I lived in my car in Berlin, Germany. And I was too proud to ask for help. I was too proud to ask for unemployment money. I was too proud to ask for social, social security. I couldn't, couldn't have gotten unemployment money because I was self-employed. But social security, what do you call it? Um, you know, welfare. I was too proud to ask for us. So I stayed in my car and with ex-girlfriends and buddies. Well, you know what's cool what you just said? This is, you know, again, you if we're listening out there, ask for help. Yeah. You know, and you know, like I was sharing with you before we even started, you know, I almost lost everything three years ago and was in the middle of a divorce and uh, losing all of my assets and uh, was called a crisis center on Interstate 10 driving in Florida after I had just been uh, basically shut out by, anyhow, it's about you. So I get it. Ask for help. It's not a weakness. What's what are you what are you reading right now? What what book are you reading right now? What's the top of your reading list? Um, well, let me ask. Let me say about the, re- the ask for help first. Ask for help also means a business, and, and you ask for help before you need it. Like when you see troubles coming and you see sort of a you know something rumbling underneath, ask for help then. Yeah. From mentors, from consultants, from from you know all kinds of. I I'm, right now for the last year or so, I've been I've been on a on quantum physics kick. So I, I read books like Joseph Murphy. I read books okay. like. Um, Happy pockets full of money. Happy pocket full of money. Um, you know, just all kinds of quantum physics books. You know, Inside Out Revolution by Michael Neal. Um, these are all these kind of books that 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 teach you that we control everything in our life from the inside out, and that anything on the outside that makes you have a reaction on the inside means you're a slave to that. 
And once you realize that you don't have to be a slave to anything in the outside world, your life changes forever. I like that, man. So where do you see yourself in five years? Well, I'll be 56 in five years. Um, I'm, you know, I just bought a house here in, in Hungary, dream house, literally. Um, nice. This house is amazing. It's got a backyard to, to die for. It looks like a Roman garden. It's beautiful. <laughs> uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. So it's like 40 clicks from Budapest. And uh, it's got fields all the way around it. There's, there's only 2,000 people live in this village. And uh, it's quite a cool place to be. So I think in five years, I'll have my online business solidified, my courses solidified. Because I started my online business a year ago, which is consulting. Um, what's, the, consulting. what's the website? Stephen Kuhn. Com. So it's at Stephen with a V dash K U H N dot com. And I have two, two systems. I have one, which is my one on one consulting, where I help people find dormant revenue in their business and then help them with the mindset and the structure of the business to grow and scale. Number two is I have a group on Facebook, which is a, a group consulting where you, you pay $149 a month and you have three sessions a week. One on Tuesdays, you have a special forces veteran who teaches high performance mindset. On Wednesdays, you have a hot seat or a deep dive into a specific theme with me. And then on Thursdays, you have a, you have a professional services person. So either a tax guy or a, a net marketing guy, online sales, you know, one of these professional services guys. And what you have there is you have a full consulting team at your service for 149 a month. And you have all the other entrepreneurs in the group that you can bounce things off of and actually start partnerships, which some of them have. And the third business I have is a product placement business. So I've placed about $50 million worth of product into uh, online sales, Amazon, uh, Costco, Walmart, uh, and Target over the last almost three and a half years now. So I have 15 veteran clients right now, actually, that I'm trying to place their products in AFES, Costco, you know, those places. Um, the AFES pitch is in two weeks, so I'm curious. They've already pre-selected a few, so it looks very good. Um, uh, products, one's dog dog treats and one's uh, a flashlight, and you know, one's whiskey. So, you know, you never know what it could be. And so that's my third business. And all three of those businesses I do online. And then, of course, on the, from all of this online presence that I have, I get all the speaking gigs. So I just got back from Morocco three weeks ago, spoke down in Casablanca. Before that, as you we met, we met in, in, in Orlando. After Orlando, I was in I was in uh, San Diego for Clever Talks, and I was in Texas. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'll be in Raleigh again in March for the Bunker Labs event, speaking there as well, the muster, muster event. So, yeah, this all came from my online business, and it all came because, like you said, I was gone from the vet- veteran world for over 20 years. When I came back, I had all this knowledge that maybe a lot of people don't have or didn't have or maybe it was different knowledge, and it came – in very useful and since last year october to this year now i've consulted 192 veterans in their business in that that's incredible man needless to say that's what i would say that's fast tracking with a solid foundation you know what you've just outlined here at the 149 dollars a month are you kidding me you know that 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 you anyhow we can go there but you, you know so let me ask you this you know being that you're an american U.S. Army veteran living in Hungary. What does freedom mean to you? You know, I, I, it's, I think freedom means to me, truly to me, it means economic and financial independence. Uh, it means to live and operate and be where I want to be with who I want to be. For me, that's personal freedom. Uh, then you have societal freedom. Societal freedom, I don't know if it even exists anymore, maybe in Iceland. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure if, it's, if it really uh, you know, 
we like to have what I call cognitive dissonance, where we sort of ignore reality to you know, justify our own beliefs. And that's what I see in a lot of countries, especially in Western Europe right now. Um, right here in Hungary, it's very um, old school, if I could say, put it that way. Very um, uh, strict. They, they believe in their sovereignty of their nation. They believe in sovereignty of their own, making their own decisions. They don't believe that the European Union should take them over. Neither does our party in Germany, uh, which is why we got so popular so quick. So I think freedom means a lot of things to a lot of people, but to me it means geographic and uh, financial independence. And for a country, it means to stay sovereign, be able to make their own decisions. And let's face it, when Trump went to the UN and said, uh, um, you know, we will never be dictated by a government body that hasn't been elected, America makes their, makes their own decisions. I had to stand behind that. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty, pretty powerful. So, you know, you alluded to it earlier, Stephen about people introspecting and being real and honest with yourself first. So do you believe that everybody has that, that power to do that? Do you think that freedom exists for everybody for them to be able to do that? Uh, most definitely. And there's no doubt about it. The problem is that most people don't know how, and that's why, that's why you need, and I, I never use that word need never, but you need to get a coach. You need to get a consult. You need to get a mentor. There's people out there. And this is what I say. This is about asking for help again. Why would, I, why would I try to learn something that would take me two or three years to learn that I would maybe be a little bit proficient at it when I can talk to the person who's already a professional at it and get it done in a day? You know, it's, it's the same thing with experience. It's the same thing with the problems you're going through. Someone has had those problems before, and someone has the answers for you or can help you find those answers quicker than you would on yourself. You're collapsing time. You're collapsing time wasted so you can get on with the rest of your life and actually enjoy it. So you always have to ask for help, especially if you're at that point, you're like, I don't know what my mission is. I just had a right, right before a call, I had a guy who, you know, wanted to work with me, couldn't afford it. And, uh, not, not that I'm that expensive, but you know, just some people just don't have the money. And he, uh, he said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, until you know what to do, why would you hire me anyway? You know, so let's do a session on what you're going to do. And, um, I told him what happens when you actually find out what your, what your, um, you know, your purpose in life is, uh, everything sort of turns to magic once you know your purpose. And so I'm helping him with that instead of helping him with his business. So I'm going to help him find his purpose first. And if it's not his business, we'll have to change his business. Simple as that. So he asked for help, but I had to sort of coach him out of it, you know, because he was looking for help for his business and, that, and it's seldom the business the problem. Very, very seldom is the business the problem. It's mostly the person running that business who has some kind of, some kind of challenge, has a blockage, uh, doesn't know how to get where they're supposed to be going. And it's normal. That's what everybody has to know. It's normal. Everyone has that. Everybody has it. I have it. You have it. Everybody has it. Just that I ask for help immediately, and, so, and, and others don't. And sometimes that's you know great wisdom there, brother. You know, but that that is absolutely sometimes why people don't get ahead. And I know that you know without that help, and what we basically say another way we could say it is you cannot do it alone. But without you know, what do you want people that are non-veterans to know about combat veterans? And then if there is that brother or sister in that dark spot what can push them to ask for that help? Tell me how, how that works. Uh, I think, well, the first, the, you know, I think civilians have, everyone has their own experience. I think if, if any civilians out there that has a certain um, um, sort of thought about a veteran that's unsavory, they should just simply meet a veteran and talk to that veteran. You know, and I think that would change everything, hopefully. <laughs> Maybe, maybe not with everyone, but choose a veteran, depends. right? <laughs> so I wear that T-shirt. <laughs> I'm on meds. No. Don't approach that guy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's true. <laughs> Actually, that guy would probably be, be the biggest softie out there. Probably um, would be. So, which is good. Um, so I, that's what I would say about that. And, of course, when the darkness is, 
you can't drag yourself out of darkness. It's almost impossible. The only thing that can get you out of darkness is asking for help is, is also looking at, you know, if your darkness stems from a survivor sort of syndrome, you know, coming back where others didn't, then look at those who didn't come back and look at what they're, they're sitting in the barracks up there, wherever they are now, or maybe down there, I don't know, who knows, sitting in the barracks and looking at you going, you better not be screwing this up, man. You got something that we don't. You have the chance that we don't. You know, so, you know, let's, let's get you moving, ask for help, you know, reach out. And it's, it's when you look at it, when, when I look at it, like that changed everything for me because look, PTSD and negativity and, and depression and stuff, that's all something that we can let take us over or we can work with it. And for me, drugging it doesn't work because it covers it up. You can't cover up a wound like that. You have to work through it. What I do with my PTSD, PTSD and my depression, because it hits me hard sometimes is I'll just say, all right, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on. Like, oh, I will, I will give it a name, give it a face, give it a picture, a color, whatever. And I'll see it coming at me and I'll just let it go through me and I'll just deal with it. Like, I'll just go, yeah, okay, I get it. And I'll just look really intensely at the problems and the thoughts that I'm having. It says, what is this thought? Where is it coming from? And who is it? And then I'll talk to Sergeant Dillon and I'll talk to the other people in my mind. And it usually passes through me within a couple hours. So, so I, there I you, yeah, I mean, there you have Stephen Eugene Kuhn. Talking about embracing the suck. Yeah. And that's kind of what that is. And you know what's really neat about that? You know, first of all, appreciate you sharing your wisdom. And I'm not, again, you've heard his voice. We're going to get the visual one of these days. But, and I'm not, and I'm not BSing. You know, you walk into these rooms and there are some people that elevate. And then there's some people that suck the wind out of it. And for any of you who are listening or haven't met Steven, he's the guy that elevates. I'm telling you, I, he's in Hungary right now in his mansion, but I, you know, I can feel the energy. And if you're a veteran out there or even a non-veteran, an entrepreneur, somebody working in a company, whatever, I know from what he's talked about today and just from feeling that energy and watching how he interacts with people that this is a guy that can help you on so many different levels. So I got to tell you, I think we're 58th episode. This, I, I, th- this has been like so much energy here. I'm going to be walking on cloud nine the rest <laughs> of the day. Awesome. So how do people, again, for the, anybody listening that wants some of that energy, how do they get you? Simple. Uh, go to my website, stephen coon.com and uh, click on contact Stephen, uh, or just write me an email. It's Stephen at s2k2management.com s2k2management.com so it's sierra the letter to the number two kilo the number two management.com and uh send me a mail and i answer all my mails i answer all my messages on facebook or facebook's easy and I, I answer all my things on my website myself as well so awesome man well you know i gotta tell you thank you for coming back home thank you for the service that you did for this country and thank you for helping all of those individuals and people at the global level, uh, that's pretty impressive. You're a guy that uh, that I really got to get to somehow. So, if, you know, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but, <laughs> Bring uh, it on, but man. I, Bring it on. I, I, I'm so glad that you're here with us today on Straight Outta Combat Radio. And uh, all I can say is I wish you a great Christmas holiday coming up, your family and you. I don't know if they even practice Thanksgiving in Hungary. So if you didn't get your turkey sandwich, you know, <laughs> go find one. But uh Really, Stephen, I appreciate you as an individual. I appreciate you as a business person and as a visionary that stands outside the circle of the culture scape. And when I say that for those of you who haven't read the book, Stephen Kuhn is the guy 
one of the guys, one of the people out there that's outside your typical culture. And it may not seem like it's important, but it is because guys like you change the world. And I'm looking forward to see what stamp you're going to put on it, brother. I, I really am. It's huge. Thank you so much. I mean, and I, and I take that very seriously when you say that. I don't just like, listen, it's like I, it's something that every time something said to me like that or anything, like I take it on and say, OK, I add that to my sort of, um, so, uh, I don't know, the the forward movement that I have because I feel that I'm going to change the world anyway. I mean, you know, one person at a time, but I'm going to change the world. And when you say something like that, I take it very seriously. No, you absolutely will. I, I, I practice guitar with a Vietnam veteran and uh, he, you know, I, I don't, I can't play guitar. It sounds like shit, but, but he, he basically sits there and he, he looked at me one day and he goes, you know what? He goes, people don't understand you, do they? I go, no, they don't. And they certainly aren't going to understand the guitar, <laughs> but you're one of the people like Dan would point out. And when you look deeper, I honestly believe that you will change the world. And I'm looking forward to see what that's going to look like. So thank you, brother. Thanks again, Stephen, for being here. I'm looking forward to the time when we can, you know, shake hands in the flesh, but keep doing what you're doing. And, um, I know you're not going to give up, man. And again, never heart goes out to you and, uh, be safe. Thank you, brother. You too. And thank you all for all the listeners. Before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Yeah.